and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We're in the festive, the bit between Christmas and New Year, aren't we? So we're stuffed, just rolling around after all the chocolate yeah. feasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah, it's been good. <laughs> Hope all of you guys have had a good one as well. Yeah, we're going to start this episode by saying thank you to all of you who gave us one of the Christmas gifts that we asked for, which was a donation to our PayPal Um, But before that, one of the people who donated, Martin Thomas, he actually contacted us after the last episode where we wondered about why blackbirds were coming back into gardens. Yes. And Martin reminded us that as well as getting all the field fairs and the red wings that come across from Scandinavia, we also have a huge influx in Scandi blackbirds. So we basically just get all the thrushes coming across the UK because we've just got loads more food at this time of year than they have up, up north so thank you very much to Martin for giving us that tidbit. Yeah. We actually shared it on our live stream YouTube video as well, which, by the way, if you haven't watched, why not get across there? We had loads of great questions, which hopefully we answered in a lot of words as usual, because we yeah. do like to talk. We kept it at an hour. We did, actually. We did quite well. But yeah, yeah. that was our Christmas present to you. So you can all go on, um, watch the whole hour. <laughs> when you're bored <laughs> you, of Christmas you're telly. really bored of the family. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, anybody who actually asked us a question in advance of that Q&A, if you didn't make it to the live one, then you can go and check it out afterwards. So now let's roll the music and say thank you to all the people who donated to our PayPal. Thank you to John Revel, to Martin Thomas, and Catherine Bales, Nicola Cox, Rebecca Wiles, Louise Patterson, Charlotte Chetwind, Sarah Woodman, Michelle Hendricks, Adam Preban, and Holly Hazen Dodd. Thank you very much to all of you. It's our birthday coming up, so if any of you didn't get a chance to give us a donation, then you can also buy us a birthday present in advance of the next episode. So if you want to donate, just go over to PayPal. The link is in the show notes. episode we are not doing sightings not because we haven't seen anything although we were frozen out for a large portion of december so we first went out- year ever we've not been able to work in yeah, december it's yeah. a bit of a shock wasn't it yeah <laughs> uh which instigated us going to our allotment and stripping down into our pants to yeah. show people what we wear but anyway so we're not doing sightings we are doing the main topic of today which is flowers across the rainbow spectrum that you can find between the winter solstice and the spring equinox yeah we're doing the whole rainbow richard of york gave battle in vain that's good i oh, had to remind myself God, you know what, i wondered before. what on earth you were talking about just then but then yes you're right yeah it's a mnemonic it is a mnemonic yeah um so we're doing the whole rainbow we're going to go through every color in the rainbow and we're going to give you four plants in that color that you can plant for a winter garden the reason why you should be doing this is twofold First of all, because it's really good to have things that are in flower in the winter because bumblebees will still be active. Lots of flies are active in the winter as well. So, so it's really good for wildlife. But also because you've got a garden, if you have one, why not have something out there to look at in the winter? You know, yeah. it's just such a waste when people say that putting their garden to bed. 
don't thing. we do not subscribe to that idea nothing no. nothing's ever poppy asleep anyway and it's just good to have a reason to go outside in the winter like we said in the last episode because the days that are sunny can be so beautiful yeah so yeah treat yourselves winter gardens i love them he does but i will point out that a lot of plants that flower in the winter have a really heavy scent and ben's sense of smell is quite bad <laughs> yeah well yours is only so good because your big nose yeah. So rude. Moving on, first colour, red. <laughs> Let's start with crab apples. Absolutely brilliant for wildlife, of course. And at this time of year in the winter, the bit that's good for the wildlife are the crabs. And if you're going for a red cultivar, it's thought that birds, thrushes will do this in particular, will tend to go for red fruit because they see them as ripe, whereas the yellow ones they tend not to go for. So if you want to go for a crab apple, go for a red fruited one. And some examples of that are red sentinel. Yeah, that's a great one. Quite small fruits. Yeah, really small. Yeah. yeah. But a profusion of them. Yeah, yeah and loads it means of them. the birds can eat them as well. Exactly. Get them in exactly. their gobs. Yeah, and if you've only got a small garden, uh, a cultivar that we've put into quite a few places is sun rival. And that's the one with a weeping habit. So again, small red uh, fruits. But um, we've put them into gardens where they're top grafted. And that's where they grow um, a different tree, essentially, up to about a metre, metre and a half. And they lop the top off and they graft this particular variety on the top. So then it never grows any taller. And if you're looking for a properly dwarf tree, you know, only about a metre and a half tall, then something like that is a is a great way to go. Yep. And my next favourite thing, I think, is when to go for like a red bark. That's a really quite easy thing to do in winter. One of my absolute favourites is the Tibetan cherry, Prunus cerula, which has beautiful, glossy, deep red... Oh, it shines. ...peeling bark as well. It's yeah. so, so pretty. Yeah, and like lots of the cherries, it's sort of, you get those striations across. It's, it's a gorgeous thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's really wonderful. And, you know, and peeling bark can be quite good as well because there's going to be loads of hidey holes for lots of different overwintering insects You're right, spiders. Well. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that. Yep. On the bark, or the stem colour really, there's all the dogwoods. And we've talked about these before. We've had Cornus sanguinea as our native plant of the week. Well, you can go for the native one, which has got a red stem, but there's loads of cultivars of it. Um, and one is called Midwinter Fire. That's a really popular one. And that's actually sort of orange below on the older wood, but it's got bright red tips to the stems. And that is planted in loads of winter gardens. It's really, really popular. So yeah, if you're looking for a an ornamental dogwood cultivar, then I'd go for one of those. The only thing with these is that you want to be pruning them down every year in the spring. So then they grow up and that's when the first year growth is where you get that really, really vibrant colour. So if you want it for wildlife interest, then maybe include dogwoods into a hedge as well, because then you'll get the flowers and the fruit later in the year. Whereas these really, really bright coloured ones, you're essentially coppicing every year, aren't you? You are indeed. And if you're a fan of fruit for yourself in the summer, then why not grow yourself a Japanese wineberry? This is Rubus funiculaceus. Very it, good. Thank you. I yeah. really thought I wasn't going to be able to say that. I, I had to try and wrap my name. My, my name? Wrap my, wrap. How much wine have you been drinking today, no, no, I've then? I've had a decaf tea. That's how sad it is. <laughs> um, I, well, you carry on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, yeah, this is a, uh, a rubus that has beautiful, uh, well, like reddish, pinky, blackberry-type fruits in the summer, yep. which taste fantastic. But the stems have a profusion of these small red 
prickles and they're they almost look furry yeah, if furry anything rather than yeah. prickles but they are really beautiful um at this time of year because you can actually see them so that was red now we're going to go through the rest of the rainbow as you might be able to tell by now we're giving you value for money lots of plants in this episode <laughs> so let's go into orange you can go first ellie Okay, so another tree, willow. And I actually pointed this out from a distance just driving through the countryside. But there are quite a few willows with really orange bark. And one of them is Salix alba yelverton. And again, in the sun in particular, you just get it lit up across the landscape. They're really fantastic. And they almost look like they've got foliage on them. There's just so much colour there. Yeah, that's right. They do the sort of same thing dogwoods do they for do. you. But yeah, you can get that sort of tapestry of different colours if you have all these different varieties in the garden and another really popular one well it flowers earlier in the year it's fantastic for wildlife is pyracantha there's lots of varieties like sapphire orange or orange glow that have orange berries and yeah it's just nice to mix those colors in with some of the other fruits that you have in the garden so grow that one for the berries and pyracantha berries really really are loved by the birds at this time of year they are probably in the top three i would say of the yeah, the shrubs that really. birds are going for. I think most of the shrubs that I know that are accessible by birds have been stripped already. It's one of the first things to go. Yeah, Pigeons they've been eating them in our them. garden. They We've have. got one. Great, well, we haven't actually got it planted in our garden, but it comes right over. Borrowed landscape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving down a bit lower to the ground, you've also got the crocus. Yes. And there is one called Orange Monarch. Beautiful little crocus flower does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Uh, Good for early bumblebees. Bowl, bowl shaped and you'll often get bumblebees sort of warming up in them as well because they actually, uh, they direct the sun, if there is sun at that time of the year, they direct it all into the centre so you might find yes, a warming up do. bumblebee. Yeah. Excellent tip. And the last orange one is witch hazel witch hazels are good year round because they've got a lovely leaf colour in the autumn as well. We're talking about hamamelis cross intermedia and there's various varieties of which are orange flowered. And those are Orange Beauty or I think it's called Helena, but it's it's got a J. Um, so it's Jelena. Really orange flowers, but they come bare on the stem, don't they, in mm. the winter. And most of the witch hazels, you should check this before you buy one, but most of the witch hazel cultivars are scented as well. Yeah, really powerfully scented. Beautiful things. That's enough of the orange ones, though. So we're going to move on to yellow. An absolute staple in most winter gardens, yep. for me anyway, is the Oregon grape. That is Mahonia, Cross Media, Winter Sun. That's the, that's the cultivar most people plant. And what you get all year round is this really stately, very spiky leaf edge, but yep. really structural plant that tends to grow quite upright as well. But over winter, it is a profusion of scented yellow it's quite small, but loads and loads of yellow flowers. And the bees they go, go for absolutely ages. Well, they go nuts for them as well, don't they? The yeah. bees. And yeah, I absolutely love Mahonia. I think it's a great plant. Some people might call it a car park plant because you do see it planted. And it's really easy to look after, but I don't think that's to sort of turn your nose up to. No, and in car park, bonus. where it is planted in car parks, it's always really badly pruned. But if you prune Mahonia well, you can do that thing where you leg it up. So you cut all the, the branches low down so you can see the clear stems and then have it higher. Or you can keep it as a low shrub. You know, they're really versatile. Yeah. So really, really lovely. I'm going to go right back down onto the ground. And here we're going with winter aconites, bright yellow, growing from a bulb. Um, obviously, you'll be planting them in sort of autumn time. And then they come up in the winter and there's 
two species that are typically grown, and these are Aranthus hymalis and Aranthus silicica. There are cultivars, but if you just buy the species, then they're great. I like them because they look like they've got little ruffs of leaves around their neck. Yes, sort they of do. like a what period of time do people wear ruffs? Elizabethan. In? Elizabethan ruff. Yeah, they've got really interesting leaf shape. Actually. Yeah, and, and that because uh, they're yellow on green leaf, and the green is out at the same time as the flower. It makes them really stand out, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, and you get them in carpet. When you, if you can naturalise them, so then you get carpets and carpets of them. I'm going back up to the canopy again with one of my absolute favourite winter plants, and that is winter sweet. Do not see this planted enough. And there's only one garden that we've worked in out of about 40 or so yeah. that has had it. And basically, this is Chimenanthus praecox, by the way. And I think it's borderline yellow because it's kind of creamy it's pale yellow very pale yellow with a bit of a, like a mauvey fleck within it as well oh, on the inside of the on petals the yeah again a bit like witch hazel kind of spindly little flowers that come out but they are so heavily scented and you know you've got one within probably i don't know 20 meters away from it because yeah. you, your nose will find it first really really lovely plant it is well worth growing because it's not a big plant no but it's a shrub but yeah, it's not I massive. think it can get to about three meters. So it's a, you can prune it as a small tree, yeah, if you wanted. But the scent is just incredible. It is. It's got to be in my top five. I would say plants for scent. I agree. We're totally fangirling it here. We are. <laughs> yeah, one that is grown quite commonly though, um, but which is very cheery. I like it. I love yellow. Is winter jasmine, and that's jasminum nudiflorum. The nude deflorum bit is um, it's nude because the flowers come out when there's no leaves on the stems. So that's where it comes from. And you can get that in just about every garden centre. And they're also really easy to take from rooted cuttings as well because they just root wherever they touch the ground. Yeah, so if, you're, if, you've got, if you've got a mate with some, the chances are they've got a bit that they can probably give dig up and give to you. Yeah, have a fertile around in the soil and just you can just prune off a bit that's got some roots on it where it's yeah touched the ground. <laughs> Moving on to green, we've got one of my other favourite plants. I think all of these are our favourites, aren't they? Otherwise, we wouldn't have chosen them. But it's the silk tassel bush, and this is Garia elliptica. A really popular cultivar is called James Roof. Yeah. And you've got the green leaves. It's an evergreen shrub. You can wall train them because they have quite upright habits, and you can keep them back against like a, a tricky wall that's yeah. in a sheltered, sort of semi shady position. Yeah, because they'll grow in any aspect, pretty much. Later on in the winter, you get these fantastic, like wonderful tassels of light green. So they actually show up against the leaves. Get your tassels out. Yeah, they <laughs> <laughs> they are wonderful plants. Yeah, coming on to another scented one. Real classic for this time of year is winter box, and that's Sarcococca confusa, and there's also a hookeriana. Um, confusa is my favourite, I would say. Me too. It's got just the pure cream flower, hasn't it? Yeah. As opposed to the one with the pinky tinge. Yeah, it's easy. It a lot. It's called winter box because it's winter flowering, and the leaf looks like box. So if you're struggling with box, if you've got box moth or box blight in your garden, and you you can you can't train it quite as clipped as normal box but you can shape it certainly mm. so if you want a replacement for box then go for that because it smells absolutely fantastic unless you're one of the oh yeah. <laughs> handful of people for whom it smells of cat piss <laughs> <laughs> which was really unfortunate did we talk about this before i, I don't remember. know we've got um we worked for a lovely blind couple and we thought let's put in lots of lovely scented plants 
I know. Let's well, they put asked for a- roses and things and we suggested this. Well, they've got roses as well, but we put in this winter box and basically we were like, yeah, they're going to absolutely love it. And then winter came and went and uh, uh, Gav basically said, what the hell's that? Smells like cat wee. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, yeah, Gav. Yeah, that's the first time we've ever heard that. So I don't know. Yeah. Again, try Again, before you yeah, buy. Give it, all, give it a sniff. <laughs> uh, moving on. Another evergreen, well, these are all evergreens actually, aren't they, is you Again, as a box replacement, we're planting a lot of you at the moment because you can topiarise it. But these those arrows, the red sort of fleshy bit on the fruit, really, really good for birds at this time of year. And it just provides cover. Like all of these evergreens, they provide cover for whatever wants to hide away in the cold winter weather. And another really, really great evergreen that is, of course, really easy to grow and looks fantastic is ivy. Hedera helix. Yeah, every garden should have a bit of ivy. It should. It's really easy to control. People get really scared of it, but there's nothing to worry about. It's fantastic cover. A lot of people do bring sprigs of it into their house at this time of year as decoration. So you've got that element as well. And we wouldn't be without it for those brilliant winter berries. Already tucked away in your ivy, I'm off eggs. Larvae as well. Yeah, yep. from earlier in the year. And they're just sitting there ready to go next year. So it's it's really, really a vital plant for for wildlife and as is of course all the um the flowers later in the year coming now into the blues indigos and purples um, don't be too pedantic about the colors that we're choosing here because some of them sort of blend one into the other don't they they do it's very relative it's also really really hard to find in nature blue colored flowers yeah it's it's a well-renowned i can't remember what the percentage is there's a really tiny percentage of flowers hardly any barely any so to find some that flower in the uk in winter is really really yeah. hard purple is more common We're but actual blue is is yeah you hardly ever see it no the first blue flower that we thought of was a great hyacinth now a lot of you might be shouting at your computers at your or wherever, wireless or wherever you're listening to us saying no they flower in the spring but there is one called muscari armeniacum Christmas pearl, which flowers in the winter. Yeah, we've got to thank our friend Gareth for pointing us onto that one. Yep, thanks, G. And that is actually blue. That is definitely blue, that mm. one. As is uh, the first grass that we're going to be talking about, which is Festuca glauca, Elijah blue. And you see this in all the garden centres. It's absolutely everywhere. But it actually has a really nice seed head. So they'll be good for birds to collect. And the seed heads are also just really good places for insects to hide away. So yeah, try that one. And that's a nice icy kind of blue colour as well, isn't yeah. it? It's it's quite light, but yeah, definitely blue. And another evergreen is Juniperus squamata blue star, which is a type of juniper, as a, you probably guessed. And it's a compact evergreen, so it's really, really use, useful. Again, so you can sort of grow it as ground cover almost, yeah, pretty can't much. you? But it, it's got a really, really lovely blue coloured leaf and that will stay blue all year. But moving away from the evergreens and back to bulbs, we have the early bulbous iris. That's iris reticulata. And there are two cultivars we're going to mention. One is claret and the other is Catherine Hodgkin. But there are many others besides which are either completely blue or they've got blue speckles in the flowers. Yeah, fantastic for pots if you've got like a a bench that's near your back door or your your kitchen window that you can look out onto. They just look really, really Instagram friendly. Yeah, that's a great point. Not that we're on Instagram, but they, yeah, they're really, really wonderful bulbs to put in. Yeah, we should say because every garden can have winter flowering plants, but if you don't have a big garden, just a couple of pots with some of these ideas in would be brilliant. Onto the indigo then. Yeah, we've really tried to find actually indigo 
plans for this, which was the hardest of all, wasn't it? It was very, very difficult. But one which we think is as indigo as you can get is the Siberian squill, Scylla siberica, which is another bulb. It grows en masse, naturalizes really well if you put it in, and it just comes up as a, a little multi-headed, there's multiple flowers per stem. Yeah. Little blue flower probably gets to about eight centimetres or so. It's not very high, but it just carpets the ground when it grows and it's wonderful. I absolutely love that one. Well, another thing coming up, this is not coming up from a root rather than a bulb, but it uh, arrives at this time of year, is the winter windflower. And that's anemone blander. And there is an indigo coloured variety called mm. blue shades. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep, it's actually, well, it says blue in the cultivar, but if you look up a photo of it, it's it's indigo, really. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like we said, you know, we're talking from the winter solstice through to the vernal equinox, the spring equinox in March. And this will be coming out in March, so it fits just within our sort of winter flower. Yeah. Just then. (laughs) I'll let you, I'll just just let you off with that. We also thought about, we've done bark, we've done leaves, we've done flowers, but another thing is fruit, because lots of things will be fruiting right now through winter. And obviously that's really good for lots of wildlife. But we thought, well, what colour fruits are there? And we thought two plants in particular have really indigo coloured berries. And that's slow. So that's our blackthorn. If you haven't picked them all to make gin already, that yeah. is. <laughs> and that's Prunus spinosa. And there's also Viburnum davidii, which is one of the more compact, low growing viburnums. Yeah. And it will have flowered earlier in the year. And yeah, the, the berries are really vibrant indigo. Properly indigo. Really indigo yeah. colour. Yeah. You don't on get loads sort of them. reddish stems as well. So they really stand out. They do. Yes. They're really, really noticeable. So yeah. That's yeah. I would say apart from Gilderose, that is my favourite viburnum, probably. Oh, you're Until all you about the favourites. You are all <laughs> about the favourites. I said this on our live stream. Ben famously... Tells everyone he knows, oh, I don't have favourites. It's because they change. It's because yeah. if you actually listen to me, yeah, if anybody's fickle. actually taking notes fickle. on this podcast, you realise <laughs> my favourites change constantly. <laughs> last one. No, not last one. Last colour of the rainbow, we should say, is violet. We are here talking sort of violet through to purple because there's actually loads of purple coloured things that are really good for a winter garden. But starting with one that really is violet coloured, we're going back to an iris, but this is the Algerian iris, and that's Iris unguicularis. Oh, it's one of my favourite words as well. Unguicularis. Yeah, (laughs) and that is a scented iris. Oh, I didn't know it was scented. Yes. What? You mean I haven't stuck my nose in it? Oh, yeah. Sad. That's not like me at all. We'll have to find some for you to whiff. I know where there is some. Where? One of our gardens. You'll have to point that out to me. I will. Yeah. Anyway, this particular cultivar that is violet coloured is called Mary Barnard. So that's one for you to go and look up. Another violety purple flower, which is really low growing, but wonderful, is cyclamen coom. And this is the cyclamen that comes out around, some of them are actually coming out now, but they largely come into bloom in sort of January, February time. And yeah, they're a classic cyclamen flower. So they sort of point sort of down and have the petals all pointing upwards, if that makes sense. They've got nodding sort of heads, haven't they? And low-growing leaves, which should have come out actually before the flowers. Yeah, that's right. And I love them because you just get these carpets of them. Very, very subtle flowers, but when they grow en masse, they really light up at the floor. Slightly more into a dusky pink and purple. Now we're talking about the hellebores. So we Mm. have the hybrid hellebores. Um, There are all sorts of colours of hellebores out there, but you go right the way from green to white and then through into 
almost black, deep, ready black. Um, but in the middle of all that, there are loads of cultivars. We're not going to name them all, but there's loads of cultivars. They're a sort of a, a lilac-y, violet-y purple. Lots are in the shops right now as well yeah. because they're doing their thing. Now's and the time to buy. Yeah. Bees love them as well. They're yeah. a great bee plant. Ben chose this one. It's, I'm a little bit dubious on its colour because I would say this is more of the pink spectrum. But No, fine. not the flower. Oh, you're going for oh, the leaf. Oh, no, of course. No, yeah, because it's evergreen. This is the Chinese fringe flower, Loripetalum chinense, variety, rubrum. And yeah, there is a beautiful flower to it as well, but that happens, I think, earlier in the year. I think it's an autumnal flowering Yeah, it one. looks like a witch hazel flower, but it's deep pink. Yes, it? but the leaves are evergreen. They're deep purple. Um, they're really pretty. They're not very big as well. They're sort of leathery looking, a bit toniastery in their form. Yeah, I guess so. Form. And they are just really, really lovely. So those are all the colours of the rainbow. And of course, if you put the rainbow together, you get white as well. So we're finally, last <laughs> four, going to give you some white coloured plants for your garden in the winter. The first is Clematis cirrhosa, Wisley Cream. Classic. Classic winter flowering Clematis. Can be quite rampant, which is great if you've got a big fence to cover. Bees will go to it. It is really lovely and it's scented. Yeah, quite big, nodding, sort of bell-shaped flowers. Maybe about an inch, an inch and a half long, hmm. something like that. Really, yeah. really, really lovely plant. For this time of year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's also one with called Freckles which is cream on the outside. And if you look on the inside, it's got little purpley spots. So I like that one. Nice that one. was my nickname when I was a child. Was it? It was very freckly. It sort of faded, washed them off. <laughs> <laughs> Another heavenly scented plant now. We've got the winter flowering honeysuckle. It's in the name, Lanicera fragrantissima. Lovely creamy white flowers covered in them. It's a shrub, actually, rather than a climb, although I suppose you could wall train it if you wanted but yeah, incredible, incredible scent through the winter. And it's flowering now already. So yeah, and a lovely one that I would recommend for just about any garden. Definitely bee favourite again. And I couldn't do white without mentioning snowdrops, the most obvious bulb, I think, for winter for most people. They'll be flowering. You can get some that flower before Christmas. And I've mm -hmm. certainly seen some in flower. But largely you're looking at sort of February for when they go into their full flow and this is Galanthus nivalis, but there's also Galanthus elwesii and Plicatus as well. Yeah. yeah, I don't really know how to describe snowdrops to anyone that's never seen it. I mean, strap-like leaves, little nodding white flowers. And again, they'll naturalise. So it's just you just end up with a profusion. It looks like it's been snowing on the ground. It's lovely. Yeah, if you want to put snowdrops in, they say to put them in in the green, don't they? Well, they're a bulb, but you should put dig them up after they flowered and then you can split clumps and, and move them around. But what did you say? One, a single bulb of a particular type of um, Oh, yeah, this is a couple of years ago. sold for what? 1,500 quid yeah. or something. Because this is there are lots of people out there that are galanthophiles. Yes, so that's right. They actually collect snowdrops. But these things are prized. Crazy money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last white stem thing we're going with, and you tend not to see these in domestic gardens, but if you go to sort of a botanic garden or a national trust garden, something like that, you'll see these in, in every winter planting. And that's some of the white stemmed brambles. They're not to everybody's taste, but I quite like them. So we've got a couple here. There's the ghost bramble, which is Rubus tibetanus. And we also have the white stemmed bramble, and that's Rubus cockburnianus. And both of them have a sort of a powdery white stem. 
Mm. Um, they're slightly different. Um, the Tibetanus grows more sort of upright and then spreading, and the Cockburnianus is it's sort of lower down. You've got to see them. I can't really describe them. But again, ghostly. you know, ghostly. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're lovely. I really like them, but they're not, they're quite big plants, quite big mm. shrubs spreading. So they're not right for lots of the gardens that we look after. But if you've got a big garden, I, I'd, I'd have a look. Yeah, I think for me, if someone else is looking after them, I don't mind looking at them. But I, <laughs> yeah. I personally wouldn't put them into any garden that I work in. I think me and Ben differ in opinion about these plants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're more of a fan than I am. I like them. I like them. <laughs> right, so that's 32 plants. That's a whole garden and more. Yeah, I mean, everybody <laughs> can find five or six of those, I guess, to put into their garden. Yeah. And I would actually suggest as well, from a design point of view, don't put your winter garden right at the end of your garden. If, you, if you're like blessed with a big garden, of course, put it near the back door because then yeah, you yeah. actually can see it or somewhere you can see it from your house. That's you right. don't necessarily have to go into the cold, wet, wintry weather. So. Yeah, and like we said, you can put things in pots. So lots of the bulbs you can yeah. put into pots, the irises again. I mean, you can make hanging baskets for winter too. Yeah, of course. You can put hellebores in them, trailing yeah. ivies, all that sort of stuff. Beautiful. So there are many more plants beside those, which we haven't mentioned, but we'll include them in the show notes. I've got a long list to put in, but I'm not going to reel them all off now. <laughs> but as we are in the winter, I really recommend going out and having a look at some of the winter gardens. You can just Google Winter Gardens UK, and there's lots of different articles out there that will tell you somewhere nearby to you that you can go but if you can't get to a garden anytime soon have a look at the cambridge botanic garden which have a beautiful winter garden and they've actually produced a fantastic audio tour which you can take that's pretty cool because i quite like hearing how other people describe things i think yeah, that well, they be quite meditative that's right they do well they, they talk about a lot of the plants that they've put in so you'll get even more ideas than we've discussed but also about some of the care you know how you actually look mm. after a winter garden because i was they, they've done this quite interestingly where it's the garden faces east to west so then with the low sun half of the garden is spotlighted it's either side of a path but then half of the garden is backlit mm. and that really really shines those stems that's what you're you're looking for so yeah there's lots of great tips on there there'll be a link to that in the show notes Now, just before we go on to our native plant of the month, which is this time, Ellie? Mistletoe! There you are. First parasitic plant we've ever done. Pucker up, everyone. (laughs) We are going to our gardening correspondent for this week, which is Rebecca Howard, talking about a community project that she's been involved in. podcast listeners I wanted to talk to you today about a project that I started back in 2019 um, with my local parish council I was feeling a bit overwhelmed by the environmental crisis and felt like I needed to do something to change my local area Um, So I got in touch with my local parish council, um, which is Twyford, which is in Berkshire, where I live, and said that 
Um, I'd be keen to do some tree planting um, around this area. And would they be able to help me out with a space? I was put onto a really lovely team of people who um, who suggested an area about five minutes walk from my house. And actually, it was a wonderful project. So we began by doing a crowdfunder and we raised £3,000 asking local residents to give us money to buy the trees initially. And we also had a, an extra idea of having dedication plaques that people could buy if they wanted to dedicate a tree to someone that they knew. And by the end of 2019, we had the money and we had a space to to start our project. Then, of course, 2020 happened and I had a bit more time on my hands suddenly. And we had the first year in our first planting in 2020, we had a very careful planting with um, all the restrictions in place, but we did um, plant 80 trees. Lots of community people got involved, lots of families and individuals came along. It was very compacted ground, so we had to try and alleviate that by um, stopping the mowers from going on there, the big sit-on mowers. We had to cordon big areas off. Stephen Lloyd, a chap, friend of mine, um, gave me lots of advice about which trees to plant. And the first planting went so well, we um, we decided to do more. We planted another 60 trees, as well as holding our own mini tree festival, which was really fun. Um, we got local people involved and tried to really put about the importance of our wild spaces, but not only just our wild spaces, but our public spaces and, you know, really show people that they can make a difference to what was basically a playing field where kids went and played football, um, which is now really starting to, to change the look of it. We are about to do a small sort of planting in a couple of weeks of just a few more trees to replace some that didn't make it. Um, and we are constantly trying to change the biodiversity of the space. So we are planting wildflower areas, bulbs, um, leaving more areas wild, cordoning some areas off so that public can see the work we're doing but can't walk on top of it. Basically, we want people to be able to use the space and get a lot more from it, but also have wildlife around us while we're doing it so we're seeing a lot more birds visit the site now we've built a stag beetle habitat which has um been really exciting we see a lot of the larvae stag beetle larvae that comprises basically lots of deadwood um trunks that you stick into the ground at a sort of right angle and it creates um, a whole area of deadwood that is brilliant for, for stag beetle habitat. If anyone's interested in our project, it is on Stanlake Meadow in Twyford. We've got a group of volunteers that come once a month to help with any tasks that need doing. So this month it will be tree planting. 
So yeah, you can you can read more about it through the Twyford Parish Council website or just Google us and hopefully you'll find us. And I really hope you get to do some work with your local parish council because sometimes it's just a small idea that turns into something positive and special. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's really good to do a bit of tree planting. I used to do it for an old charity that I worked for. And of course, it is the tree planting time of year. Yeah, get your spades out. And also, well done in including some deadwood into the project that you're doing. And if you've not heard our deadwood episode yet, then go back in time, just one episode, episode 29, and that was all about deadwood. And Ellie did a wonderful, what did you do? Sort of miniaturised yourself. shrink a lot, 3,000? Something like that, yeah. (laughs) Can't remember which model it was, but you know. Yeah, but you did come across (laughs) a gigantic stag beetle larvae, didn't you? We did, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. We are always looking for gardening correspondence, so if you want to hear yourself in the podcast, then record five minutes or so on your phone about what you've been up to in your garden and send it to hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. So you made a small exception for Rebecca there because she's talking about community project, but really we want to know about what you're doing in your actual gardens at home. Or balconies, whatever space you have outside your, your back door. for native plant of the month i love it my turn to take the helm this month and i'm really happy about that because we've been learning all about mistletoe we couldn't get through the festive period without talking about it i don't think nope and i've learned so so much which i've not actually shared anything really with ben have i because we don't talk to each other no (laughs) (laughs) we just sit next to each other and silently read scientific papers and he's actually not joking that's true (laughs) so we're talking about mistletoe this is viscum album and we're talking about the subspecies album but there are quite a few subspecies and the latin viscum is also the name given to the sticky viscous substance which is around the seed of mistletoe while album simply means white which is of course the color of the berries i think most people will know that If you look up into a tree canopy and it's there, you'll see one or a few characteristic balls of green growing out of the naked branches of a deciduous tree in winter. And the balls, which are actually a shrub, can reach a whole two metres in diameter. So they can actually be quite conspicuous. That's good. So that's been measured. It's obviously been measured. I think that's maximum. So you're probably more likely to get about a metre. you look at them really high up and you think that was massive. Yeah. But then I I always thought the perspective was just doing something weird with me. (laughs) No, no, no. These are actually, these are big shrubs or they can be quite big shrubs, especially as they're suspended in the air. If you're lucky enough to have some within reach, because that's the critical thing at this time, you'll actually see that the ball is made of a loose mass of green but woody stems. And those stems are smooth, which, by the way, if you want to be botanical technical... Botanical klaxon? Botany! The smoothness is also described as being glabrous. And I, the way I remember it is that it's the opposite to Ben's hirsute or hairy face. <laughs> He's not very glabrous. I don't know if that's a very good learning <laughs> result. 
The way to remember it is to think of the opposite of Ben's face. And then the word glabrous or glabrous will immediately come to mind. Maybe you're right. But anyway, it helped me. The small and leathery leaves sit opposite each other along the stems and they start narrow, getting wider as they move away from the stem. And then they have a rounded tip. And if you want to know, this is another botanical klaxon, that leaf shape is called oblanceolate. Basically, top wider than the bottom is also a very fine way of describing yeah. <laughs> it, if you don't want to remember that. There are loads of special <clears throat> terms for these leaf shapes. It Indeed. Gets confusing. Exactly. And in fact, if you think that we get technical... <laughs> As an outro to this episode, I wanted Ben to record me just reading the British Ecological Society's description of mistletoe because I read it and I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you'll be I'm... able to hear what we take and then condense down into the technical language that we include in the podcast. Yeah, we cherry pick a few things that we think maybe people and ourselves will remember. But anyway, you've got that to look forward to. The flowers of mistletoe are pretty inconspicuous. And especially when they're really high up in a tree, you're unlikely to really notice them. But they come out in February to April. And of course, that isn't really what us humans are really interested in. It's the resulting berries that we tend to go nuts for. And these start green and then ripen to a waxy looking white or sometimes a bit pale yellow. That's interesting. So you said the flowers come out in February yeah. to April. Yep. That's just... a really long period between burying now. Yep. So they're flower and they must be flowering and then the berries are lasting yep. ages. Yeah, yeah, wow. definitely. I know, yeah. They just take a really long time to ripen. That's that's the trick. Mistletoe sits in the Santalaceae plant family. Well, that's Christmassy. Have you Ah I didn't even notice Santa. that? <laughs> yes. Santalaceae. That is a really good way of remembering it. I love it. But and don't doesn't mean anything like that though. <laughs> it's actually the sandalwood family. Oh right, okay. <laughs> And I had a quick look because I thought, I don't know what else sits in the Sunderwood family. And I couldn't see anything else that was native to the UK. So I don't know if you know of anything, Ben. In the Sunderwood family? Yeah. No, no idea. No. But the point is that... But there could be. I just don't know. If any of you know, then do get in touch. I just couldn't see anything. But mistletoe is well known as being a hemiparasitic plant. And that is a common feature of all the Sunderwood plants across the world. Yeah. And this means that it does take water and dissolve nutrients from its host plant, but also that it has the ability to photosynthesize, I cannot speak, uh, via all of its green bits. Yeah, we should reinforce that bit on the hemiparasite, because often we talk about yellow rattle, mm. and we say that's a hemiparasite, and that's the difference between a hemiparasite and a parasite, is that the hemiparasites still have photosynthetic material so yeah. they'll still be producing some of their own nutrition of, of their food of they don't yeah, but they rely. take some off their host whereas a true parasite will not be producing any of its own food it'll be taking all of it from its host greedy right then <clears throat> it's time for the folk history let me just get all my files out on this that was the sound of the heft of folklore that exists around <laughs> this little plant so i'm going to do my best to summarize it because there is just so much Given the fact that it's parasitic, never reaches the ground, is evergreen and has those conspicuous glaucous white berries in winter, has meant that as humans, we found it pretty special over the years. And that's why we have such a long history and tradition. And it, it symbolises so many different things. It's been long believed that it can protect from evil and also from disease. 
It had a really long association with fertility and vitality, probably because of it being evergreen and also the fact that it blooms in winter, Mm -hmm. so February time. But the connection between mistletoe and love, however, is thought to have come from Norse mythology, which is new to me. And there are loads of versions of this, but in one, the son of Odin, which is the Norse god of war and death, is killed by an arrow made of mistletoe. The boy's mum, Frigg, is obviously devastated by this, and her tears of sorrow fall over him and turn to white berries, which then cover the plant. Makes sense. Obviously. (laughs) And out of that, the plant was also then promised as a symbol of love and friendship in the future to sort of counter the fact that her son had just been killed. But now, of course, we like to use it to get a snog. (laughs) Leap forward into the future, and now we just kiss under it. And this kissing thing apparently started in the 1700s in the UK, but actually seems to have been cemented by Charles Dickens and other writers who mention exactly the process in books like the Pitwick Papers. Yeah, hilarious book, by the way. It is a very good book. Now, thankfully, we've moved away from this, but the custom used to be that a man could kiss any woman under the mistletoe, but that then a berry had to be picked after each kiss, so it had sort of a shelf life. But then for an unhealthy extra dose of coercion, it was bad luck not to accept and good luck to accept. As well as love, it's also traditionally put up as a good luck charm and also as a deterrent to witchcraft and lightning, those two (laughs) things that everyone looks out for, but was also carried by women hoping to conceive. So it's a bit of an all-rounder, really. Good for everything. It's good for lots of things. And there's also an equally long list of historical and current herbal, medical, and also cosmetic uses that I absolutely don't have time to go into. But we'll mention, just in case, that all parts of the plant are actually poisonous before you all trot off to try some. Mistletoe is found across a huge area, including Europe, up to southern Sweden and east to the Black Sea, in Asia and North Africa, but where it does pop up is actually quite patchy. It needs a mixture of the right temperate climate, the right host species, and also the right animals to spread it. And so the combination of this affects really where you can actually find it. In the UK, it's pretty widespread, but it's actually not distributed that equally. And you're much more likely to see it if you're in the southwest of the English Midlands and into the southern Welsh borders Which is actually interesting because I was going to say rather sadly that my favourite mistletoe colony that I've seen is along the M5 in exactly that area. So that is actually where you're more likely to see it pop up. Yeah, I mean, not the ideal place to go picking for Christmas. maybe not. Not not that glam. (laughs) Outside of that main area, you'll get isolated colonies of various different sizes. Mostly found in the lowlands, so below about 200 metres in altitude, but you can find it higher up. For example, in Swiss Alps, it can actually be found at about 1,500 metres. And it enjoys open, man-made landscapes like parks, gardens, orchards, a really good one, roadsides, cemeteries, and also churchyards. And that's because despite growing in amongst another tree, it does actually need really good light levels. So you just not... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're not going to find it in like a dense wood. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it in a woodland. You're right. It's always freestanding trees, isn't it? So what does it actually grow on? It grows on a huge range of broadleaf trees across, this has been recorded, 452 different taxa. So that's different species of tree. But in particular, it does like trees in the Rosaceae family. In the UK, the most popular tree is the apple, that's Malus domestica, then lime and hawthorn and poplar. While those are its favourite, it's also been recorded on blackthorn, on rowan and willows and many, many more trees beside. And there was actually a theory 
that the reason there's so much mistletoe in the southwest midlands is because that's where we had most of our orchards traditionally but that has actually been poo-pooed now and it's more because that's where the climate is particularly favorable for it elsewhere it could actually be popping up because of deliberate planting by us which then obviously enables it to spread naturally across the pond over in the us of a there are actually a few introduced colonies and many of them are being monitored and also prevented from expanding and basically from potentially becoming a problem species and it's thought that they were brought in probably around 1900s for Christmas decorations and also medicinal uses. Yeah, well, you know, as they're a semi-parasite, probably not something you want to release in its non-native range. No, indeed. So then, the bit that everyone looks forward to the most, I think, the sexual antics of mistletoe. Mistletoe is a dioecious plant and this translates to two houses and that describes in itself how the male and female sexual parts are held on different plants altogether so you need one of each for successful pollination. Because of that, unless you have multiple plants you're very unlikely to get a colony established but when you do, you can start to get multiple plants growing away and in fact I saw this as an interesting fact that in Cambridge... Up to 100 mistletoe plants were found on a single species of Acer. Wow. I know. Poor tree. Yeah. <laughs> what did I do to deserve this? But I'm sure it also looks amazing and great if you live nearby at yeah. Christmas time. Flowers will only start to be produced when a plant is three to seven years old and older. And incidentally, an individual plant can live up to 40 years old. Oh, that's long. Yeah, old. I suppose it's a shrub, like yeah, you said. indeed. The flower buds are formed in early summer through to late September, and then they essentially sit and wait for spring to arrive, like lots of things. But they can actually be triggered to break as early as December, so you could potentially have berries from last year and next year's flowers all on the same plant. Its normal flowering period, though, is February to April, so you're more likely to get berries and then flowers later on. The plants that have the female flowers flower first, and then the male plants will flower a bit later, And I looked up the flowers and they really are inconspicuous. I kind of described them as small yellow nubbins and that's both the males and the females. They look very similar. The pollen is heavy and sticky, so it does need and has evolved to have animals transport it rather than the wind. And the insects that do pollinate it are attracted to the flowers because they have a really nice fruity smell, Mm. which is described by some as being like apple juice, ripe apples or even orange blossom. Isn't that nice? That scent is used by the flower to attract in the insects that then go on to pollinate it, but they're also rewarded with nectar. When the flowers are successfully pollinated, what is actually produced is called a pseudoberry. I've called it a berry up until now, and it's a berry for all intents and purposes, but in terms of botanical speak, it's a pseudoberry. And those berries are produced on the end shoots of the female plant only. They're usually solitary, so you normally only get one. But if you're lucky, you can get two. Sometimes you can get three. And even more rare, you can get multiple berries. And I guess those are really more desirable as Christmas decorations. Every berry or pseudoberry contains a single seed. And that seed is covered in viscin. And this is an important sticky substance. 
which I'll go into in a second. The berries ripen in December, which is why we harvest them, but they do need a period of winter dormancy before any germination will occur. Actually, this bit is a bit juicy, Ben. I think you're going to like this. Although it's dioecious, so you've got male plants and female plants, it is also possible that multiple embryos within one seed can germinate. And if they're close together, they can effectively grow into each other and look like one plant. So in that case, it's possible to get male and female flowers growing on what looks like the same plant. So what you're saying is you get one single seed that actually has more than one offspring. Indeed. And those offspring can be sexually different to each other. Exactly, yes. And if they're growing into each other, they can also sort of semi-parasitize each other as well as their host plant isn't that mad that's that's you know just siblings fighting isn't it (laughs) yeah except imagine being a fighting sibling that you cannot get away from for like your entire life yeah (laughs) so how does it actually spread around if it's growing up in the canopy well it really does rely very heavily on birds as the seed dispersal vector and i mentioned that sticky substance that's around the actual seed within the berry but it's that that caught, that sticks to the bird, basically. And the bird will then fly off and wipe it off onto another tree branch. And that's where hopefully it should germinate later on. But importantly, that seed won't germinate unless the flesh has been removed first. So that is the white fleshy bit of the berry. And that's again where birds come in because that's the bit that's tasty to them. So they'll eat it. Some will eat it off the seed. The seed will stick to their face and they'll wipe it off. And others uh, right, yeah. will eat the whole thing. So some of the, oh, I'll go into the wildlife in a second, but some of the bigger birds will eat the whole thing and then they'll poop it. They do the same thing for slug slime as yeah, well. Yeah, right. Yeah. They'll quite often wipe their beaks because obviously I can't imagine that's very nice to have in your mouth. No. <laughs> ben does it too when he gets food in his beard. You might see him on a branch just wiping <laughs> his face. <laughs> Not slugs, <laughs> food. <laughs> Mistletoe is great, therefore, for absolutely loads and loads of wildlife across the whole year. The flowers are pollinated by lots of winter active species, especially flies, but also ants, which I thought was quite interesting. And I would say, uh, it's a speculation because I've not read up on it, but if an ant is collecting the pollen you know, on itself, it can then only probably pollinate a mistletoe plant that's on the same tree because it's not able to fly So flies are actually the main vector for moving that pollen around because they can travel sometimes kilometres in the wind. You'll also get honey and bumblebees if it's been warm enough for the flowers to come out and for those to start flying. And also many other insects which will come for the nectar if they're active, like moths and butterflies. Those pseudoberries, despite being white, are actually attractive to birds. And it's, as I've said, those guys who do the majority, if not all of the dispersal, Weirdly, what I did read is that in the UK, there are fewer bird species that eat the berries than elsewhere in Europe. Elsewhere in Europe, you might also see robins take them, tits and things like that, but they don't here. Here, you're more likely to get mistletoe eaten by mistle thrushes. They're probably one of the main species. Black caps are becoming more important for mistletoe dispersal. But also things like field fairs and red wings will also eat them. And if you're really lucky to have them, wax wings will will take them as well. Mm. So they're actually a really good all-round homegrown bird food to have in your garden if, you, if you're lucky enough to have it. As well as that, rodents will also eat the berries and the seed within. So not so good for dispersal, but good for feeding them. 
And if the plant's low growing enough, then rabbits really like the foliage as well as roe deer. The foliage? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not poisonous to them, apparently. Like most of our native plants, there are also a whole host of species that use mistletoe as one of their larval food plant or as their sole larval food plant. And in fact, there are eight monophagous species that rely entirely on mistletoe for their diet. Five of those are found in the UK. And just to remind people, monophagous means single eating. So it it just means that it only eats that one thing. Very fussy, basically. Of those monophagous specialist species, we've got Silypha, I think that's how you pronounce it, Woodyana, or otherwise known as the mistletoe marble moth. Oh, so I was going to go with the moth. And this is a really localised and very rare moth species whose larvae depend entirely on mistletoe. You're only going to get that one if you have a mature apple orchard and you live in southern England. It's actually a really pretty little moth with mottled grey and beige and white markings. There's also the mistletoe weevil, and that's our primary specialist, which is relied upon as a food source by a parasitoid wasp species. So you've got this secondary layer of animals that are reliant on mistletoe for their food. Basically, it's just wheels within wheels within wheels in wildlife gardening. So if you fancy having it in your own garden, the only place that I think you'd really struggle to get mistletoe to grow is if you're lucky enough to be on the coast because it won't tolerate salt-laden winds. And also if you have a woodland garden with lots of dense tree cover, because as I said, it really does need light to germinate and to grow away. If you'd like to grow it, this is actually one that you absolutely have to propagate yourself, actually. But the process is pretty easy. Though I will say that if you want berries to form, you need to guarantee that you have a female plant and ideally a male plant nearby. So you actually have to hedge your bets and do quite a few seeds So you almost have to start your own mini colony. First, you need to choose a tree in your garden that it likes to grow on. Yeah, so lots of people will have a rowan or or an apple in their garden, something like that. Indeed. As I said, there's a long list of plants from earlier on. Then you have to wait until March to actually harvest some ripe berries from another tree. Ideally, the same type of tree that you're about to try and put it onto. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's going to be more favourable. It's going to know what it's growing on, basically. Oh, that's a good tip. And I guess the you want you're waiting till March until it's had quite a bit of frost on that, that but, berry to sort of soften it up and get it so it's uh, ready for germination. Yeah, it needs that cold snap to be ripe and ready to germinate. You then remove the seed from the berry by washing off that white flesh. And then you choose a branch on your tree that is 10 centimetres or more in girth and ideally pretty high up in the tree where enough light will get to the plant. On suitable branches, find a crevice or even make yourself a crevice with a shallow cut with a clean sharp knife and then simply rub the seed into that cut just smush it in smush it in after that it's a waiting game as is most of gardening yeah just wait and see if it's worked really (laughs) but do keep a lookout for the little shoots because we've actually had people that tried to establish mistletoe they were complaining that they couldn't do it and i was literally stood next to it pointing to the mistletoe that was growing Can't yeah, because I think sometimes was. it takes a little while for it to get its roots into the, the host tree and then, you know, it can it can sit there for a little while before it actually pops up. There is the other thing that birds might take the seed that you've just sort of stuffed into the into the bark, but do just keep your eyes peeled, basically. And if it is the white berries that you're going for, so you get a good old Christmas snog, then 
it's going to be five years before you actually have a plant that's mature enough to make them. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> but well worth it. Those five years will fly by. <laughs> I'll say just one thing about its parasiticness, for want of a better word. I'm not trying to scare you because it's unlikely to kill an established tree, but it does weaken it. It takes nitrogen from host leaves and reduces their ability to photosynthesize, which in turn reduces the flowering and fruiting of whatever tree you're growing it on, especially if that tree isn't that vigorous. So if you are putting it onto an apple that you're cropping, then probably avoid putting it on apples that are on small rootstocks, i.e. dwarf apple trees, because those don't have the vigor to compete with the mistletoe that's on them. Yeah, a great big bramley can Totally hack fine. It. Yeah. There aren't any cultivars to choose from. We're just talking about the species here. Come March, go out, find some berries, pick them, and why not have a go at propagating in your own garden? Thank you very much, Ellie. That was fascinating. Our first hemiparasitic plant. You're welcome. Let's talk about the next episode before we go. We have a book club next time. We will be reading The Garden Jungle by Professor Dave Goulson, who is a proper insect expert. In particular, is a, a big expert in bees. And he's also a fantastic wildlife gardener with a wonderful garden, which I'd love to visit one day. Grab The Garden Jungle and we can be talking about some of the facts we've learned from it next time. And on the topic of insects, you should also check out a fantastic booklet on wildlife gardening by Nicholas and Alice Trull, who are listeners to the podcast. They produced a a little booklet, it's called Bottom Up Wildlife Gardening, and there's a link in the show notes, and the illustrations and all the information in there is just fab. Yeah, Yeah, really beautiful. In the next episode, we will be two whole years old, and January 20th is our birthday, if you've enjoyed the podcast over the last couple of years and you do want to support us, then please make a donation to our PayPal. Any amount is gratefully, gratefully received. Yes, and finally, coming back to the topic of winter gardens, we are having our first ever podcast meetup and it's going to be in a winter garden in February. But the only way that you will know about it is to subscribe to our free newsletter, which is our Substack. There's a link in the show notes where you can go to wildlifegardenpod.substack.com. So until the next time, everyone, keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Mistletoe, Santalaceae, formerly Viscaceae, Loranthaceae. Viscum album L is a woody evergreen obligate hemiparasite of tree branches, divergently branching to form a spherical loose mass to two metres diameter. It has an endophytic horstorial system of sinkers for absorbing water and dissolved nutrients from the host xylem and a green photosynthetic exophyte. Stems glabrous up to one metre long, leaves opposite, without stipules, rarely hauled, green yellowish green, oblanceolate to narrowly obovate, rounded at apex, narrowed at base, entire, three to seven parallel veins, glabrous, coriaceous, diaoecious, inflorescence inconspicuous, three to five flowers in crowded apical cymes, bracts united to the short pedicels, flowers more or less sessile, actinomorphic, epigynous, perianth in two whorls, calyx rudimentary, four-tooth in females, absent in males, tepals four, nearly free, male flowers centred with four anthers, sessile and tepals, occupying most of the inner surface of the tepal, anthers open with pores, rudimentary ovary sometimes present, female flowers.